0: What's your favorite meal? What makes your mouth water as you, uh, as you think about that meal? If I'm asked that question, I have a hard time deciding because I like so many different things, but if, it, if I had to be tied down, it'd probably be a uh, Thai green curry. I was introduced to this mouth-watering dish when I was in seminary in Denver. A group of fellow students Who had become good friends invited me to this place that they go where they had really good Thai green curry. It was a Thai restaurant and I I can only describe it as an explosion of flavors in every bite. And I was really disappointed when I had finished everything on my plate. I wanted more yet I was strangely satisfied. If you were to ask me what my favorite meal was when I was in college before that, I probably would have said turkey dinner. I have all kinds of fond memories around turkey dinner. Big family thanksgivings, Christmas meals at grandma's house with all her other dishes that she had and different ovens that she had. I don't know how many ovens she had in her kitchen, but it seemed like she had one for each dish. And, and then homemade pies. Conversations around the dinner table. Lots of smiles, lots of laughters, lots of stories, and lots of love. It turns out that there's a lot more to taste than just the food on your tongue. Uh, Because what I remember is the taste of the experience. The science of taste confirms that taste is affected by more than just what's on your tongue. It's the sights and the sounds and the smells and even the emotions that surround whatever is going on with that food on your plate. My wife worked really hard to, to help me understand that a pre, the presentation of a meal is, is just as important as the actual cooking of it. Because she understands that the experience of eating and tasting is, is affected by the different sights and different sounds, and, as well as the tastes and the smells. In fact, my wife Cheryl, she has a dinnerware set Uh, a China set that was her grandmother's set. And it's very important to her, and I used to question her why we took up so much space in our kitchen for this set that we rarely ever used. But I'm starting to understand and recognize that she's really good at creating experiences that embrace people and make them feel loved through her focus on the details like that. The China set is more than just about the dinnerware. It's about her feelings of love for her grandmother. It's about marking special occasions and creating traditions for our family and for our friends. So whether you think of a delightful taste experience or a time when you felt especially embraced by love, it's something that sticks with you. It has a lasting impact on you. When you get a taste of love, a deep care and concern for your well-being. No questions asked about whether you deserve it or not. No conditions or obligations, just a deep care and concern for you because you matter. It feels really good. And it's contagious. You want to feel it more and you want to share it. You want more people to experience it. This morning we're talking we're looking at the first taste of the kingdom. The first taste of the fruit of the Spirit that we introduced last week in Galatians 5, through 23. And of course, this first taste is love. Galatians 5, through 23, the focus of our series says this. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Last week we talked about how the Apostle Paul, who was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to the Galatian people, how he was, he was instructing us on how to live as people who follow Jesus, as people who are part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom where Jesus is king and he rules and his rule is good. And he told us that to live as people of the kingdom of God is to live differently than what comes naturally to us. Differently than the desires, just following the desires that we all have, that all humans have, because we're corrupted by sin and guilt and shame. Paul was very careful to say that we don't live differently on our own strength. We can't do that, because it's fundamentally different. It starts in our core. it, It begins in the heart. We can pretend, we can even look like people who live good and godly lives, but to truly live differently is to have God do a miracle in our hearts, in the core of our being. And this only begins when we give our lives to him and allow the Holy Spirit that he puts in us to change and transform us. And he enables us to walk in step with the Spirit. And he changes us from the inside out in order to produce good, beautiful, life-giving fruit in and through us. So when we talk about love as the first fruit of the Spirit, we have to remember this is something impossible for us to do and manufacture on our own. It has to be a work of the Spirit. The truth of biblical love is that only God is love, and therefore he is the source of love. And we only know love because he chose to give it to us and he chose to reveal it to us. The fact is, at the beginning, in the beginning, God created us in love. He gave us humans the ability to love and yet we opposed his love. The first two humans disobeyed his one command that would demonstrate their love and trust in him and they disobeyed. But God didn't give up on us. He pursued us in love, and ultimately Romans 5.8 says that he didn't just tell us he loves us, but he demonstrated it, and he demonstrated it by giving his son to be, die- to be killed at our hands, on our behalf. While we are still sinners, still opposed to God, defacing his creation, he died for us, loved us that much. Galatians 5.22 tells us that that's the kind of love this love that's willing to give completely of himself, that's what he produces in us. It's not just a feeling we have sometimes. It's not just an idea. It's not just a chemical reaction. It's not a romantic attraction or a great experience. It can encompass those things, but it's not just that. The love that the Holy Spirit produces in us is a choice that we make to follow him and let him produce in us, and it is a completely different way of life that affects every part of who we are our thoughts our attitudes our behaviors and our emotions the word love in english appears in the bible over 550 times according to the niv exhaustive concordance there are different hebrew and greek words that are translated into our english word love the word that's translated as love in galatians 5:22 is is going to be familiar to some of you. It's the word agape. That's the Greek word agape. You may, some of you may recognize this Greek word, and it's, it's referenced over 200 times in the New Testament, and it's referring to the highest, purest form of self-giving love. I could take a while to explain this to you, but the Bible Project did a really good job making a video that, in a short time, with visual, helps us understand it in a short amount of time. So I want to watch that together now. So watch the screen and they will tell, tell us about agape love.
1: So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this actually is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that is really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It is an unclear word in English because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So, what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is Ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is, Aramaic, in which the word for love is Rahma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word Agape. But here is what is fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus, who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they did not learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So, one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So, love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important. To love your neighbor as yourself. So, which is the most important? Loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they are inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It is a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand, or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like, love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards and hurting people who could not benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And When Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And For John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that is how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So, Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world. Which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others. Creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that is the New Testament meaning of agape love.
0: Agape love. It's beautiful. Galatians 5.22 tells us that if we are living by, led by, walking by, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, by actively choosing to put to death our sinful nature, we talked about this last week, daily nailing that sinful nature to the cross, crucifying the way we want to live on our own without him in order to embrace the Holy Spirit, and allow him to ask him to work with him to empower us. Galatians 5.22 tells us that that's the kind of fruit that he produces in us, that agape love, that he empowers us, transforms us to be able to live out. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 6, it tells us that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So, what does it look like? How do we do this? How do we live out this kind of love? What does it look like? i want to give you three biblical principles. I think, I hope, it will help us better know what this kind of love looks like. First is humbleness. The Bible is very clear. God is God and we are not. God is infinite. We are finite. God's ways are so above our ways, we can't figure them out. I've been reading through the book of Job in the Old Testament and it's a fascinating book because Job has this wonderful life and he's faithful to God and God even says of him this in Job 1.8, he says, Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Yet everything is taken from him his family, his wealth, even his health, and he has no idea why. We as readers are told the bigger picture, but Job has no idea. It's a surprise to him. Well, three of his friends find out his plight, and each one of them makes this long speech, makes long speeches, about how Job must have sinned. He, he's suffering because he did something wrong, and he, 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 he needs to admit that to God. He needs to confess that to God. He needs to repent because if he didn't do anything wrong, then he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be suffering. That's not how God works. Well, Job insists on his innocence. And after each argument, he complains and he pleads with God, but he never rejects God. And finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. And, and God reveals how much greater he is than Either Job or his friends think about him. And he reveals this through a series of questions that he asks them. Do you know this? Do you know that? How does this? And it just reveals how much greater he thinks, and he more is going on than any human could understand. Well, Job says Job repents in Job, Job 42, 3 it says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And then God speaks. To Job's friends, He's, he focuses in on one of them, Eliphaz, and he says, "I am angry with you, and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has." See, these guys—they thought they had God all figured out. They were so confident that they understood how God works and how He doesn't work that they could—they could judge Job and tell him, "You need to—you you did something wrong because God wouldn't." make you suffer if you didn't but the truth is they didn't have God figured out nobody can God continually surprises us and God humbled them Proverbs 11:2 2 says when pride comes then comes disgrace but with humility comes wisdom if we truly want to know God and walk by the spirit of wisdom if we want the spirit to produce the love of Jesus this agape love in us we need to be humble before God James four ten says humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up this means that we need to recognize he is God and we are not he knows better than we do on everything including how to run our lives so we can bring all our requests to him we can tell him what we would like we can ask him for things we can beg him for things we can cry out to him but we have we can't demand that he do things our way and we can't reject him when he doesn't do things the way we want, then we're saying, I am no better. We have to be willing to trust him even when we don't understand. So we need to be humble before God. We're also called to be humble in our relationships with other people. I think one of the most profound places where we're called to this kind of humbleness is Philippians 2. In verse 3, we're told this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others sounds really easy doesn't it actually it doesn't if you think about it it's terribly hard to live this out so Paul goes on and he gives an example he says in your relationships with one another have the mindset same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If there's ever been a challenge to North American Christians, this is as tough as it gets. Be like Jesus, who gave gave up everything for people that crucified him. Humble ourselves to a shameful and agonizing death? Consider people I don't like as more important than myself? But that's what he did for us. Jesus gave himself for us, for me. That's how much he loves me, that's how much he loves you, that's how much he loves us. Romans 8 asks, if God is for me, who can be against me? What does it matter what anybody else thinks of me? The king of the universe loves me and he gave himself for me. This is the love that the Holy Spirit produces in us and to live it out, to understand it, to receive it, to share it, we have to humble ourselves before God and for, before each other. So the first biblical principle that helps us know better how to live out this kind of agape love that the Spirit produces in us is humbleness. The second one is respect. Now. This one's related to humbleness. But the reason I want to mention it separately is because there's something that is known as false humility. This is pride in disguise. If we're practicing false humility, we may appear humble, we deflect praise, we make false apologies, even put ourselves down, yet secretly we're looking to be complimented and noticed. We can appear humble to consider others as important as we are, or even more important than we are, yet deep down we look down on other people. We think of ourselves as superior, as knowing more, or being more valuable. But to be truly humble, we must honestly and sincerely respect other people. 1 Peter 2.17 says, show proper respect to everyone. It doesn't make contingencies. Show proper respect if it doesn't make any of those contingencies. There's no terms. There's no conditions. Just show proper respect to everyone. Romans 12.10 goes even further and says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Well, to honor someone else is to value their dignity and their value, to recognize their value and their dignity. Every person is made in the image of God. Now ponder that for a minute. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person somehow reflects something of God. Every person is extremely valued by and loved by God. If we look down on someone, what are we saying to God? So how do we respect people we don't like? How we respect people that bug us? How do we respect people that have different values than us or different convictions than us? In a world that's becoming more and more polarized against each other, where people are so certain that they know what is right, whether it's a political issue, some people lean more to the right and have conservative values. Others lean more to the left and have liberal values. Both have strongly held convictions And both sides are convinced the other is wrong. Or moral issues or ethical issues or economical issues or social issues. No matter the issue, we're seeing deeper divides than ever before. People are becoming more and more extreme in their convictions with an unwillingness to compromise or even engage respectfully. Convinced that everybody who thinks differently than them is wrong. How do we respect somebody? when they have different convictions or values than we do. Now, I don't want you to get stuck on the issues I just mentioned. I just want to be clear that issues, all of these issues, involve people. We're called to love people. So whoever you think of when you think of them, when you think of those people, who, who are the people that you think of when you think of those people? We have to be careful because it's really easy to villainize and forget the value and dignity of each person. So how do we respect people with different convictions than we have? I'm reminded of Jesus hanging on the cross in Luke 23 after he was beaten and he was mocked. And as the Roman soldiers are dividing his clothes as he's hanging there and people are standing around watching him and mocking him and shaming him, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm also reminded of Ephesians 6. Of Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. People are not our enemies. Our, our enemy is Satan. And the spiritual forces aligned with him against the good world that God created and that God gave himself to redeem. To live out the love of the Holy Spirit is to respect the value and the dignity of each and every person. You haven't looked into the eyes of anyone who God doesn't love deeply. So we need to pray for them. And we need to pray for ourselves that we would begin to see people every person the way he sees them that he would be willing to die for them for you for me every person while we are totally against him and i think another part of respect is to assume the best this is really difficult much of the time our natural reaction is to assume the worst in a person especially when we take something they do personally. But much of the time, it's not a personal affront. Somebody cuts you off. Usually, it's not because they're mad at you. They're just trying to get some. There's something bigger going on. There's so much more going on in a person than we recognize. Assuming the best is recognizing that people are complex. Most of the time, people are trying to do the best they can. Instead of assuming they're against us, which is our natural way, or that they're lazy, or they have bad motives, or they're Begin with assuming the best. That sounds more like Jesus. When we assume the best, we are more inclined to respect the value and the dignity of each person. So first, being humble before others, before God and others. Secondly, respecting the value and the dignity of every person. This leads to the third principle, which is listening. We've talked again and again about how much God loves us. In Psalm 116, the psalmist writes, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. This is one of the many places in the Bible that reveal that God listens to us. He shows his love to us by listening to us. He inspired many of the psalms that cry out to God, and, and share our anger at him or our frustration at him, but he inspired that to show us that we can cry out to him and he hears us, he listens to us, even when we're way off base about him. Listening is a gift of love. It's a gift of love that God gives to us and it's a gift of love that he tells us to give to each other. James 4, uh, 1.19 says everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry. That pretty much wraps up being humble, respecting, and listening. Practice listening. Practice listening without trying to think of what you're going to talk about next. I'm sure we all do this. Somebody's sharing a story and we're like, oh, that reminds me of this story that's even better than that one and I'm going to tell it next and I'm going to play. and you're half listening to what they're saying but you just can't wait to get your story in there. So practice listening without thinking about that. Refocus on that person, be curious about them. Practice listening without trying to figure out how to correct them when you hear something that you don't agree with. If you think you need to correct everything, then you're not respecting the person and you're not being humble. If you're always correcting what others are saying, they're they're gonna stop sharing with you and they're not gonna come to you when they're ready to hear what you have to say. Listening this way does not come easy. It takes a lot of practice. We're so used to thinking about what we're going to say next, half listening. We're so used to thinking, I need to fix them because they're thinking wrongly. Instead of just showing love by listening, giving that gift, earning the right to be able to say something when they're ready. When someone listens to me without judgment, I feel loved. I would think most of us feel, uh, don't feel loved when we're rebuked or we're put in our place. The love of the Spirit is a love that knows us completely, every fault, every fear, every failure, every hope, every de- dream, every blemish, and doesn't reject us because of all those things, but loves us anyway. Loves us enough to die for us. Agape love. Agape love self-sacrificial love beautiful and something only the holy spirit can produce in us but i hope that these principles help you see what it might look like how we can ask god to help us live it out as we put to death our sinful nature and ask him to empower us to live out his agape love Let's pray. God, you are so amazing because you show us this agape love. And God, it comes naturally to you because it's who you are. You are agape love. You demonstrate it. You gave us an example. You, you showed us, you, and you, you tell us you will empower us to be able to be that way. Oh God, help us be willing. Help us to be ready to admit that we struggle so much and we need you. Help us to be willing if we're not willing and help us to take know what next steps are when we are willing. Empower us to live out your agape love to each other, to you, and rejoice in it to taste more of your kingdom and to be the taste of your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.